Can we read from Romans chapter 12, please? Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We'll read that again, please. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And back now to chapter 6 of the same epistle, please. Chapter 6. Verse 22. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end, everlasting life. Being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end, everlasting life. And now back to the opening chapter of the letter, please. Paul, in his introduction, introducing himself to believers that he's never met in his life, but has heard a great deal about. He simply introduces himself in chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And may God bless his word to our hearts this evening. I'd like to speak tonight about Christian service, about the way that God has made it possible to every true born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to fulfill their role in the body of Christ in the way that God has equipped them in some way or other. I want to say what I believe the Word of God teaches in Romans 12, and other portions of Scripture which deal with spiritual gifts, uh, that it's my conviction that every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is gifted in some way to fulfill their service in the time allotted down here, and to think about how the Apostle Paul viewed his service, and in the time available to think how it might be possible for us also to use our own gift to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in the time that we have. Now, I don't know the years of my life, the span that God has allotted, and I believe that none of us here knows just how long we have to serve him. But it is my conviction uh, that the Apostle Paul felt that he had a very poor start as a follower of Jesus Christ, it is surely significant that he describes himself as the chief of sinners for whom Christ died, uh, less than the least of all saints. He speaks of himself as not worthy to be called an apostle, and yet amazingly, by the grace of God, he became an outstanding servant of Jesus Christ. And he became the servant that we like to think of because on the day that he was wonderfully saved, when his life was transformed, uh, he asked 
two all-important questions. The first question, who art thou, Lord? And the second question, what wilt thou have me to do? And really those two questions shaped his whole life. For in every single letter that he wrote in the New Testament, he adds to our appreciation as to who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Who art thou, Lord? And I would think that every single letter that this man wrote gives us help us to know who he was. And I would also argue that every letter that he wrote helps true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to know in what way the Lord Jesus Christ wants them to serve him. What wilt thou have me to do? I believe that if I don't at some point ask that question each day, I run the risk of wasting time. What wilt thou have me to do? And so I suppose that the two questions go together. Who art thou, Lord? What wilt thou have me to do? Well, Paul was in no doubt at all that God had separated him to be in some way involved in the gospel. And of course, that's a wonderful privilege. If God calls you to be a preacher of the gospel, don't stoop for anything less than that. For it's a wonderful thing to be involved in the gospel. And I think it's wonderful to notice the deep humility of a man blessed with gifts that marked him out even from his youngest days as being academically brilliant, that in the goodness of God, he never forgot that he was saved from a wasted life. He was saved from Pharisaism. He was saved from legalism. He was saved from a dead religion. He was saved from law-keeping and a dry mechanical adherence to a religious creed to serve the living and true God. And so it's wonderful that when Paul takes up his pen to write a letter that is arguably one of the most important letters that have ever been written, he begins simply, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. And this was everything for this man. Now, if you're to ask me how it was possible that he would be able to help them, then I would probably argue that it wasn't easy. Because for this man, hundreds of miles from where these believers lived, all his information was second-hand. He'd never been to Rome. He didn't know the situation of the believers at Rome. And yet there is something so wonderful about these words that he begins in his introduction that never ceased to thrill my heart. He is a servant of God. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to a company of believers up there in the far-flung corners of the Roman Empire. And he says, whether you realize it or not, you are beloved of God. And I want to help you. And so by the grace given, this is the servant of Jesus Christ, thanking God, for he is a servant who's always thanking God. I wonder if you've noticed every time you pick up a letter of the Apostle Paul that he's always profoundly moved to thanksgiving, normally in the first chapter. And here he thanks God for believers whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And he just wants them to know that what he has heard has encouraged him. Now you say, how can Paul help a company of believers so far away? Well, he can help them in a number of ways. He can help them, first of all, by doing what any believer can do. And he speaks about this in verses 9 and 10. He says, I want you to know... Although I'm so far away from you, I am a servant and I'm always praying for you. Indeed, he says, without ceasing, I make mention of you. 
You're always in my prayers. Isn't that wonderful? Sometimes we meet believers in various parts of the country and they come up to us and they say, do you know, we remember the work in Manchester every single day of the week. We pray for those dear young people in the mill and we pray for that soup kitchen in the city and we pray for those lads on the drug rehabilitation program. We're always praying for you. Well, this is the kind of man that Paul was. He says, I'm always praying. You're always in my prayers. He's not exaggerating. I know that because he says, God is my witness. You can't call God as your witness or, or as your record if you don't mean every single word that you say. He says, God is my witness. Without ceasing, I make mention of you. I do exaggerate. I, I must admit, it might be a trait of my family. But my daughter knows that sometimes when I'm telling her a story at night, she's not getting the actual facts. She sometimes says, you're exaggerating, Dad. And she's probably right. But this man wasn't when he says, God is my witness. Without ceasing, I may mention of you always in my prayers. And I'd love to come and see you. Indeed, he says, I make request. If by any means... At length, I might have a prosperous journey to come unto you. I'd love to come and see you. But he says, I'm a servant. And a servant doesn't make the decisions. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And so he says, although I long to see you, and I may impart some spiritual gift, I may be comforted, I wouldn't have you ignorant, brethren, that Oftentimes, I purpose to come to you. Indeed, he says in verse 15, I am ready, and happy the servant of Jesus Christ who can say that, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome. It's in my heart. I'd love to have fellowship with you, fellowship in the gospel. I'm ready to preach, but I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And as a servant, I'm under orders. And I obey him. And so this servant, without meaning to, tells us a great deal about how he views his service in the first 15 letters, or first 15 verses of this wonderful, wonderful letter. Now the whole emphasis of these first five chapters is to convince these believers that what he enjoys, they can enjoy. It is his conviction that God has saved them to serve. You come to chapter 6 when he asks that all-important question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He answers that question. He says, God forbid. God forbid that we should continue in sin that grace may abound. And to those who are baptized into Jesus Christ in verse 3, and those who are crucified with Christ in verse 6, Paul argues that they are delivered from their sins in chapter 6 and verse 18, and that they become the servants of God. Now to get to 6 and verse 22, you really need to do the homework and to see the wonderful logic of this apostle. But briefly, what Paul is arguing is simply this. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you because you're beloved of God. I want you to know about the power of God. He glories in this power of God that's in the gospel of Jesus Christ, where, whereby God is able to save Gentiles in chapter 1. And Jews in chapter 2. And all sinners everywhere in chapter 3. He's, he's held up Abraham, as we saw this afternoon, as an example of one who was justified by faith. But he tells us it's not only Abraham. He tells us in the last two verses of chapter 4 that to us also, if we believe, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And praise God, we do believe that. 
And so Paul goes on to say, well, if you've got that far, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've got a completely new relationship. And he says, we've access by faith into that grace wherein we stand. We can draw near to God. And we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The blessings are wonderful. Read chapter 5 to enjoy them. And in chapter 6, he's reached the point where he wants them to know that he never wants us to feel that there's an option of going back and going back to the old life and the terrible tragedy of living a defeated life. One of our lads just two weeks ago who was on the drug rehabilitation program with us lapsed and oh, how he's suffering today as he's got to go through all that agonizing process again. And it's heartbreaking to see him. Coming in in the morning, can't sit still, battling addiction, heartbreaking. Well, says the Apostle Paul, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May that never be. God forbid. And so he continues in chapter 6 and 7. Chapter 7 is a wonderful chapter. It reveals that even this great servant of God feels that he hasn't arrived. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me? He knows that he's still battling. But in chapter 8, he takes us on to a very high plateau indeed and describes the wonderful blessings of those who know that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And in the course of the eighth chapter of this letter, he comes to the point where he can ask this question, that he's asked repeatedly in the letter, what shall we say then? What shall we say then? I wonder why he asks the question. What shall we say? My daughter said to me two weeks ago, that's a rhetorical question, Dad, isn't it? I said, what are you talking about rhetorical questions for? You're only nine years old. Well, she says, that's a question you don't need to answer. That's a question that's meant to make you think. And when he asks the question in chapter 3, verse 5, he asks it in connection with judgment and why God judges as he does and how shall God judge. And when he asks the question in chapter 4, he asks it in connection with Abraham and what Abraham has received and why he's justified. And when he asks the question in chapter 6, verse 1, it's in connection with the past and my sins. And when he asks the question again in chapter 8, verse 31, it's with the intention of us pausing to think, what shall we say then? If God be for us, who can be against us? And Paul's conclusion is that there is nothing, absolutely nothing in life, nothing in death, that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, and I believe it. But he pauses there at the end of chapter 8. And we hear him continue. We wonder why he begins to talk about not lying and having continual sorrow in his heart and this deep burden for his own fellow nationals. I lie not. I say the truth in Christ. We wonder, what are you going to say, Paul? And what he's going to say is this, that although he has argued at the end of chapter 8 that there's nothing can separate us from the love of God, he says if it were possible that he could be accursed for their sake, that they might be saved, that they might enjoy his blessings, that they might know peace with God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a man that lives with this constant anxiety. They're not saved. They're not saved. They're not saved. Brethren, chapter 10, verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer to God that they might be saved. Do you know, dear fellow believer, I read those verses recently and I thought to myself, what do you know, Andrew? about that kind of deep, deep burden. 
How many times have you preached the gospel and gone home and had a good supper and had a sound night's sleep and forgotten that the people that you've preached to and that you've seen on the streets are lost, condemned, helpless sinners. So this servant of Jesus Christ had a heart for those that he served amongst. And he continues in chapters 9, 10, and 11 to show how the gospel applies to Israel. In the past, chapter 9, in the, pre in the present, chapter 10, and he shows in chapter 11 that there's a wonderful, wonderful future. And then we come to chapter 12, and this is what we read. And we pause as we think of these amazing words. Brethren. And we remind ourselves that when Paul wrote these words, he was suffering. And we think about this appeal to believers that he loved in the Lord. He's writing as a servant of Jesus Christ. He's told us that he longs that they might become servants of God in chapter 6, verse 22. And again he comes back to this theme. Be not conformed to this world. Be ye transformed by the renewal of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, this is a man that knows that God had separated him for the gospel. We know that because he's taught about that in chapter 1. But what are the basic principles that we just want to highlight tonight so that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that those who serve are some elite group? Some group, we might call them, of full-time workers. So just so that we don't fall into the trap of ever thinking that there is some believers who fall into a category of service and that their service is more important or more valued than others, let's just remind ourselves of what the Word of God teaches. Let's go back to the Gospel of Matthew to start off with. And let's remind ourselves that in Matthew chapter 4, when the Lord Jesus Christ was being tempted, he made this amazing statement, and I quote, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So that was the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in it he makes it absolutely clear that God values worship and he values service. And that what he wants of his people is that we should worship the Lord thy God and him only shall we serve. Now if you put me on the spot, I would probably say that I believe that even the order of those words is important. And if you were to put me in a corner, I'd probably say that I believe that those who know how to worship know how to serve. I believe that the reason the Lord Jesus Christ, when dealing with a Samaritan woman, in John chapter 4, talked about worship and service in a definite order is significant. The Lord Jesus Christ talked about, and I quote, the gift of God in John chapter 4 verse 10. If thou knewest the gift of God. That was her greatest need, the gift of God. He then went on to speak about living water. And he went on to speak about her own personal circumstances. Go call thy husband. And he then went on to speak about worship. After speaking about salvation, the Father seeketh such to worship him. The Father seeketh worshippers. And he then went on to speak, and only then, about service. Lift up your eyes, and look on the fields. 
They are white already to harvest. So he speaks about worship and service. I might imagine that the Lord would have wanted to speak about worship to that religious man in chapter 3. But he doesn't do that. He speaks about the new birth to that religious man. And he speaks about worship to that sinful Samaritan woman. But it is wonderful, and I repeat, it is imperative that we understand this. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. Those who worship in Matthew's gospel are a diverse company. And you can't help but notice that some of them are Jews, and some of them are Gentiles, that some of them are male, and some of them are female. That the wise men in chapter 2 of Matthew's gospel, who simply come saying, where is he? We have come to worship him, are succeeded by a leper in chapter 8, who comes with this simple request, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And he worships. That he is succeeded in chapter 9 by a synagogue ruler. And that in chapter 14, for the first time, the company of the disciples worship as a group after the storm, and confess that he is the Son of God. So we've already seen various men worshipping individually and as a group. And the sisters are no doubt asking, well, what about the women? And so we come into Matthew chapter 15, and we meet one of the most remarkable examples of worship in the gospel, a Canaanite woman one who had absolutely no claim at all upon him. But she knew that he was worthy of worship, and she knew that he deserved her homage, and she had faith enough, and the Lord Jesus Christ says to her, O woman, great is thy faith. And she is succeeded by the mother of James and John in chapter 20 and also by the two Marys in Matthew chapter 28. And taking all these examples of worship together, and reading right through to the last chapter in the book, where he receives worship for the last time on the mountain, we're in absolutely no doubt at all that the Lord Jesus Christ was worthy to receive worship. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Dear fellow believer, it's wonderful to be here on this lovely sunny afternoon in Suffolk. This is the kind of weather I'm used to every day of the week in Manchester. Let me tell you that. But it's wonderful to remember that we came specifically today to read and enjoy the Word of God. And if the Lord be not come tonight, it will be my privilege tomorrow to remember the Lord Jesus in the way that he's appointed. And I challenge my heart, if I come tomorrow and I don't enjoy what these worshippers have enjoyed in Matthew's Gospel Wise men, a leper, a synagogue ruler, disciples, a Canaanite woman, the mother of two of the disciples and the two Marys. And if I don't enjoy and don't come prepared with a heart full of Christ, it's going to affect my service this week. I believe that. I believe you can't just switch it on. And I believe that I can't just start preparing my heart late on a Saturday night. That would be extremely unwise to think that I can possibly, in the space of a few hours, prepare myself for the most important meeting of the week. The only meeting of the assembly where we come not to receive but to give, where we come simply to present the worship of these redeemed hearts. And I believe, what I'm sure we all believe, 
but it's still important to worship in spirit and in truth. And so Matthew's gospel sets the tone, but it's obvious that service is equally important. Because when we come to the very next chapter of the New Testament, it starts with these sublime words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What a wonderful phrase. And wonderful that there was a beginning. The beginning of the gospel. And before you've read the whole of Mark's gospel, chapter 1, you must be impressed with this simple fact. He's calling his servants to him. He's making it absolutely clear and plain that he wants them to be involved. Come ye after me, Mark chapter 1, verse 17, and I will make you to become fishers of men. I'm going to give you some tasks to perform. You're going to become a fisher of men. I'm going to undertake the training. The Lord Jesus Christ assumes the responsibility. Come ye after me. The, the servant is always following. Mark you, God's perfect servant was absolutely different, wasn't he? Unique. The greatest servant that this world has ever known. I wonder why God selected a man who at one time was considered to be unprofitable in the ministry, to write a gospel that describes the greatest servant that has ever lived. Behold my servant. Do you know what Mark says about him in chapter 10 and verse 45? He says, and I quote, that he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So the greatest servant that ever lived, he came not to be served, but to serve. And we must be absolutely thrilled tonight at the selection of individuals that were able to enter into his service. And help in some way a little company of women who followed him from Galilee. Amazing to think of a demon-possessed man whose life is transformed. And he went on to become a great servant. The joy of serving him. He wanted to stay with the Lord Jesus. He wanted to travel from town to town and city to city. Do you know what the Lord Jesus Christ said to him? Go home and tell them what great things the Lord has done for thee. You start at home there in Decapolis. I wonder whether that would apply to someone here this evening. That the home would be where you'd start. That's possibly the hardest place, isn't it? That's certainly the place where you are known in your true colors. That's certainly the place where those whom I love know me best. After all, the saints only see me at the assembly meetings. They don't see me when I'm not as patient as I could be with the children. And perhaps I'm a little unthoughtful and unkind with my wife. I would imagine it wasn't easy for this man, but I would absolutely argue that he went and started there in the home and covered that area of Decapolis. Go home and show, says one gospel writer, and tell, says another gospel writer, the things that he has done. Wonderful to think that in Mark chapter 1, this wonderful servant of Jehovah actually encourages them to serve with him. Wonderful that when they came back into his presence saying, all men seek for thee, he immediately replied, let us go into the next towns also. For therefore came I forth. Let us go 
Wonderful that the same servant in chapter 16 simply says to them, Go ye and preach the gospel to every creature. And so this servant appreciates the contribution that they make in his service. I know that because of the language that he sometimes uses. It is true that of God's perfect servant, the incomparable Christ, they said at the end of chapter 7, he hath done all things well. And of course that was absolutely true. But it's also true that they were able to enter into his service. Let me just remind you how they were able to do that. Right at the end of Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, in the home of one of his followers, facing the first severe trial, they come to him and they spake of her, of Simon's wife's mother, who lay sick of a fever. This was obviously a concern of theirs, and they spake of him. And so God's perfect servant... He reaches out the hand. Of course, his hands are always busy. It is busy to be good in the Lord's service, isn't it? It is good to tire ourselves out. He's always using his hands in this gospel. Seven times over, his hands are mentioned. The hands that touched the leper in chapter 1. The hands that touched Simon's wife's mother-in-law, chapter 1. The hands that touched the young girl in chapter 5. This devoted servant of Jehovah filled his days with service. I wonder whether I do. I wonder whether it still thrills my heart to be a servant of Jesus Christ. I wonder whether it would be said of me as it was said of a faithful sister, a faithful woman, she hath done what she could. He hath done all things well. She hath done what she could. I wonder if the Lord had taken me at the age of 29, 30, as he took Jim Elliot. It would have been said, honestly of me, as he said, I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. I wonder that at barely 30 years of age, Jim Elliot's life of service was over. I wonder about that. Whether like David Brainerd, one of the greatest missionaries that this country has ever produced, who wore himself out with service for the cause of the gospel, whether in my early 30s I would ever have accomplished what he accomplished. I wonder. I wonder whether this isn't one of the most remarkable commendations that the Lord Jesus Christ ever gave. She hath done what she could. I wonder, dear fellow believer, does this still matter to me? That there's coming a day when all my service will be reviewed at the judgment seat of Christ. I wonder. I wonder whether I constantly remind my heart, as Paul does in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, that my attitude towards my fellow believers will be assessed at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what Paul teaches. I wonder whether I've grasped this, that one day all my work in the assembly, it will be assessed. That's what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians. And what will remain of all my service? I wonder whether I've grasped this, that all my service in the home, even in the workplace, not to be a man-pleaser, it will one day be assessed at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what the Word of God teaches. I wonder whether I've grasped this, that every thought, word, and deed, he scrutinizes 
my down-sitting, my uprising. He understands my thoughts afar off. He compasses me about, accompanies me through life. If I ascend into heaven, he knows. Down into the depths, he's aware of it. The psalmist said, such knowledge is too wonderful. I wonder whether that knowledge would be wonderful for me. And so it's absolutely crystal clear that he wants my service. As we come into the third gospel, the gospel of Luke, I couldn't help but notice that in Luke's gospel, he seems to make it abundantly clear that those delivered from sin are expected to go on to serve him. I wonder whether you've read Luke chapter 5 and noticed that moment in the life of Simon Peter where he's profoundly distressed by his own sinfulness and confesses, depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. Oh, what a sinner. And that immediately the Lord Jesus Christ adds and goes on to say, henceforth thou shalt catch men. What a fisher of man he became. And so Simon Peter, whose ministry arguably takes up almost half of the Acts of the Apostles, became an evangelist and a true shepherd, always involved. Acts chapter 2, indeed Acts chapter 1, it's he that stands and challenges those present to obey what they claim to obey. In Acts chapter 3, he's going into the temple at the hour of prayer. In Acts chapter 8, he goes down into Samaria along with his co-worker whom he loved in the Lord. In Acts chapter 12, he faces his first severe trial and is imprisoned. This is a servant who knew the good days, the bad days, the joys, the sorrows, the heartache and the wonderful privilege of living a full life of service for you, Lord Jesus. I was talking with someone at the tea interval about a dear, dear brother that I loved in the Lord from up in Ballyclare, Northern Ireland. Used to write to me, used to encourage me. And dear brother Norman Horan was actively involved in the service of the Lord almost right to the end into his 90s, and still encouraging the believers, and still writing to believers around the world, and still actively involved in the assembly, loved the assembly. I wonder, is there an option of retirement from serving this master one day? Would we not want to prolong our service as long as we can? Would we not like to be the same as the Apostle Paul who commenced so badly, but as he drew near to that all-important day of his departure, could say, none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. I wonder whether that's what I want to finish my course with joy. That's what he wanted. And so we come into John's gospel. And pretty soon after the commencement of John's gospel, we're into the second chapter. On the day he begins his public ministry, a significant day in his life, the Lord Jesus Christ was invited. The disciples were present and Mary, the mother of Jesus, says an extremely important thing. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Whatever it is, do it. I wonder whether I want that. That whatever the Lord would have me to do, would that be my longing? Was it true as we sang a couple of hours ago? 
Be thou the object, bright and fair. That's what Jim Elliot wrote, you know, on a fly leaf of a hymn book that he handed to Elizabeth Howard, who became Elizabeth Elliot, his wife, one day. He wrote these words. Be thou the object, bright and fair, to fill and satisfy the heart. My hope to meet thee in the air, and never more from thee to part that I may undistracted be to follow, serve, and live for thee. Is that what I want? A full life of service, said Nate Saint, if God would grant us the vision, the word sacrifice would disappear from my language. What sacrifice do I make for my Lord and Master? I've hardly ever had to sacrifice compared to these of whom we've read today. I hear believers say that we live in difficult days. I wonder what that expression is meant to entail. I've never suffered severe persecution. Along the way I might have met a few people who, who didn't wish me well, but these dear believers hazarded their lives for the cause of Christ. I seek not a long life, but a full one, like thee, Lord Jesus. And so when we come to this great appeal, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service, your reasonable service, we have to acknowledge that Paul has every right to make this appeal. I love to read through the Acts of the Apostles. I love to see what service involved for those believers. I love to begin the story in the opening chapter. You can still read the book at one sitting. I love to see the priorities they set for themselves in chapter 2. Those things that were non-negotiable, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the prayers. They still meant everything to the apostles. I love to see the way they re responded to severe persecution in Acts chapter 4, how they met together their own company. They loved those believers. You know, dear fellow believer, it is the case that those with whom I'm in fellowship are precious. When the Apostle Paul writes to the believers in Philippi, he talks in chapter 1 about my bonds, my bonds in Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, he talks about my joy, fulfill ye my joy. In Philippians chapter 3, he talks about my Lord, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. In Philippians chapter 4, he talks about those believers, my dearly beloved, my joy and delight, my longed for. Is that how we talk about our fellow believers? Let me solemnly remind each of our hearts. How we talk about our fellow believers is important. He hears. Why judgest thou thy brother, says Paul in Romans chapter 14? You've not got the right to speak ill of your brother. You've no right to speak about your brother in a disparaging way. The apostle Paul speaks of my dearly beloved, my joy and crown. Well, the Apostle Paul, he sets a very high standard, an extremely high standard. And those believers, they loved each other. In Acts chapter 8, the persecution increased. They fled from Jerusalem. Imagine that they had to leave their homes. I've never had to leave my home. I've never known persecution like that. Do you know the amazing thing is that everywhere they went into Samaria, they took the gospel with them. They preached, 
they gossiped the gospel, they took the opportunities, they preached the gospel. You know, the result of all that work, multitudes were saved. It got to the ears of the believers in Jerusalem. They sent down Peter again and John. They prayed with them, and so the work went on, day in, day out, week in, week out. The preaching of the gospel, the teaching of the word of God, until you come to the 20th chapter of the epistle when the apostle Paul knows that his end is drawing near. I know this, for in my own heart of hearts, I know my own heart well enough to know that this is something that I tend to put on the back burner. I don't think a great deal about it. I've had to in the last few years because I've, I've lost my mother and father. And it has the uh, ability to focus your mind again when you lose those who are very precious. I wonder why it is that I don't talk, talk more about God's assessment of my service on earth. And why it is that I don't look forward to the Father's house. And why it is that I still can't honestly say what he said. None of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. Do you know, dear fellow believer, it's wonderful to see a believer who finishes well. Really wonderful. Uh, to know that that service is over. Imagine the Lord Jesus Christ, 33 brief years at the commencement of his public ministry. He says, let us go that I may preach. At the end of his public ministry, he simply says, Go ye and preach. Isn't it wonderful the way the story finished for God's perfect servant? End of Matthew's gospel. He, he receives worship for the last time from his own. End of Mark's gospel. He ascends into heaven. His work, his service is over. End of Luke's gospel, they returned into Jerusalem and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. End of John's gospel, he speaks to them, if I will that he tarry till I come, till I come, what is that to thee? Till I come. Tonight we reply, even so come Lord Jesus. May it be my desire to be a servant of Jesus Christ. May it be so for his name's sake.